And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Lord Jesus, thank you for these parting instructions. And Lord, as we read them again today, Lord, we're overwhelmed by the gravitas of these things, that you want us to to go out into all the world, into our Jerusalem, and our Judea and Samaria, in to the ends of the earth, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and building your kingdom on this earth. And Lord, we look at our own resources, our own strength. It's meager. We're weak. And Lord, we think of the, the daunting task that you set before us, and we wonder how. Lord, help us to understand that the answer to that question is the power of your Spirit. That you have not asked us to do what you have not empowered us to do. And so this morning, Lord, we pray that as we understand, it would create an eagerness in us and an openness with us where we could receive the power of your Spirit in our lives so that we can reach our world for Jesus. Please speak in our hearts today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had an ambition, something you really wanted to do with all your heart? You spent long hours practicing and prepping, and just before you were about to perform, someone said, you aren't quite ready. Well, years ago now, God gave me a song. It was a little worship tune that just popped into my head one day. I thought it was really good. I decided that I would learn it, and then I would sing it and teach it to our church. I practiced and practiced that song in the car, in the shower, all day long, in the office. I sang that song, and I was almost ready to teach it to Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain when I made the fatal mistake of sharing it with my wife. I just wanted Kathy to tell me how good I sounded. I'll never forget her tender counsel. You can't be serious. You'll embarrass the whole family. God may have given you that song, but he never intended for you to give it to anyone else. Trust me, it was just for you. Well, I swallowed my pride, and I received her wise counsel. And I concluded, I just wasn't quite ready. And neither were these disciples. 
There were 40 days between the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension into heaven. And for the disciples, these were 40 days of unimaginable thrills. They were hanging out with the one who had conquered death. If ever they doubted Jesus was God, now in his very real presence, all of those doubts had vanished. They cherished every second they spent with Jesus. They hung on his every word. Their hearts burned within them when they were with him. These were 40 days the disciples hoped would never end. But they did come to an end. And just before Jesus ascended back to heaven, he gave his disciples new marching orders. He commanded them, go and make disciples of all the nations. It was quite a commission for a handful of frightened men who five weeks earlier had tucked tail and run scared. They had publicly denied and forsaken their Lord. And yet, if ever there was a time to start over, this was it. Their days with the risen Christ had stirred their hearts. And I would have expected Jesus to have seized the momentum, to harness their zeal, take advantage of their excitement, and thrust them headlong into the world at that very moment. But that's not what he did. Instead, Jesus did just the opposite. He told his disciples to return to Jerusalem and wait. Wait? Why wait? Weren't they ready? Weren't they qualified? Actually, according to modern missionary standards, there have never been 11 more qualified men in history. For one, these guys were educated. For three and a half years, they were homeschooled by the master teacher himself, our Lord Jesus. And they were experienced. They had witnessed miracles. In fact, they had even performed miracles themselves. Remember, Jesus had sent them out two by two to heal the sick and cast out demons. And these were committed men. The disciples had proven their devotion to Jesus. They had left behind houses and businesses and families to follow him. And finally, the disciples were regenerated men. They were saved. They had been born again. John 20 Verse 22 tells us, Jesus breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. As the Father breathed physical life into Adam, the Lord Jesus breathed into his disciples and they became spiritually alive with the life of God. Here we're educated, experienced, committed, regenerated men. But there was one thing they lacked. There was one missing entry on their spiritual resume, and it was the power of the Holy Spirit. They had received the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, but now they needed to be immersed or baptized in the supernatural power of the same Spirit. Jesus knew his disciples could go only so far, riding the rush of sheer excitement. Enthusiasm alone would not be enough to face down the opposition and the persecution and the difficulties they would encounter. No, they needed a supernatural burst, a punch of spiritual strength. They needed the power of God's Spirit. Jesus knew that in fighting the superpowers of the flesh and the world and the devil, conventional weapons are inadequate. The disciples needed a super-powered arsenal. 
And thus, before moving them forward, he sends them back to Jerusalem to wait for his Spirit's power. There is a legend I once heard about the great NASCAR driver, Donnie Allison. In a Daytona 500 race, Allison got off to a good start. Just two laps, though, into the race, something went wrong. In the first turn, his car stalled out. Allison rolled off into the track, into the infield. It didn't take long to discover the problem. No one in Allison's crew had bothered to fill the car with gas. Donnie Allison was an experienced, seasoned, successful driver. His car was $250,000 worth of precision and preparation, but the Allison crew made an omission that short-circuited their mission. And this has happened to many Christians and churches. They sport a spiritual paint job. There's a Bible knowledge galore. There's experience, even commitment under the hood. But there's no gas in the tank. We'll never fulfill the great commission if we're guilty of the great omission. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches us that there are three experiences that we can have with God, the Holy Spirit. He is with us. He comes to dwell in us, and he even comes upon us. In John 14, verse 17, Jesus told the disciples, I will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. See, before we become Christians, the Spirit is with us. He's the hound of heaven. He sniffs us out and tracks us down and convicts us of our sin. He reveals to us the love of Jesus, the reality of our sin, and our need for a Savior. Then once we come to Jesus, the Spirit moves to dwell in us. He's our helper. He now comforts us and corrects us. He conveys to us God's peace and presence. But there is a third experience that we can have with the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised that he would come upon us. Here in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. More than conviction and comfort. More than just peace and presence. The Holy Spirit gives us power to be a witness. It's not that we get more of God's Spirit. He isn't allocated to us in portions. If you believe in Jesus, you have all of the Spirit residing in you. But you see, there are different experiences that we can have with the Holy Spirit. Here's an illustration for you. Most football teams nowadays have a water spray on the sideline. It keeps the team cooled down and refreshed. But having water with them isn't the same as getting a drink. To stay hydrated, the players need water in them. And a drink is not the same as celebrating with a Gatorade shower where water is poured out upon you at the end of the game. A victory needs to be culminated with a rush of water. See, the water is with and then in and then upon a football player. It's all water, 
but it's different experiences that player can have with that water. And so it is in our relationship with God's Spirit. He's with us. He is in us, but He also wants to come upon us. Understand, every true Christian has the Holy Spirit residing with them and alive in them. But not all Christians have the Holy Spirit's power upon their lives. It's been said, just as it takes two batteries to energize a flashlight, it takes two batteries to empower Christians to shine brightly. The battery of regeneration and the battery of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus taught his disciples that John the Baptist would baptize his followers with water, but Jesus would baptize his followers with the power of the Holy Spirit. Here in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, the word baptized, it means to immerse. God wants to plunge us into the power of His Spirit. It's an all-consuming type of experience. In the New Testament, this spiritual immersion goes by different names. It's called baptism or filling or pouring out or coming upon or the promise of the Father, or rivers of living water, or the sealing of the Spirit. But understand, the experience is the same. Let there be no confusion. God's Spirit wants to come upon believing hearts with supernatural power. See, the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration is a secret work. It happens quietly in our hearts. But this filling, well, it's thrilling. Waves of joy flood over our soul. Donald G. once said, when you are baptized with the Holy Spirit, you know it. And you need no one to acquaint you with the fact you will soon be acquainting them. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was first poured out on Jesus' waiting disciples, it happened suddenly, spontaneously. Acts chapter 2, verse 2 recounts the event that occurred there in the upper room. And suddenly, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. And one set upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Notice this was not an outcome that came upon the disciples gradually. It happened suddenly. See, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a point-in-time experience. They were filled in a flash, saturated in a second, juiced in a jiffy. I've heard pastors teach, well, the more you yield, then the more he'll fill. Hey, I believe God wants us to yield our lives to him. But nowhere in the Scripture are we told that the Spirit is poured out incrementally or the outpouring is a process. To the contrary, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an event that occurs. It marks a sacred moment in our lives. I'll never forget the first time I was baptized with the Holy Spirit. There were a group of teenagers and 20-somethings hanging out on the street corner near my house. One night I was driving by and I felt the strong impression to stop and witness to them of the love of Jesus. Well, after fighting with the urge for several minutes, I chickened out. Hey, I was a Christian. God's Spirit had planted 
in me, godly desires. That's why I was prompted to share with them in the first place. But what I lacked was power. I desired to be a witness, but I went home feeling more like a wimp. I needed to be a bold witness that God wanted me to be. I needed the power of the Holy Spirit. I learned the truth of Corey Ten Boone's words, the human spirit fails except when the Holy Spirit feels. When I got home that night, I remember laying face down on the living room floor, and in desperation I prayed for the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. I told God I had to have it. And suddenly, the Holy Spirit came upon me in a way I had never experienced before. Jesus immersed me in His Spirit. He infused me with a love that overcame my fears. I rose up from the floor that night with a new boldness and a new determination to stand for Jesus. And the next night, I went back down to the street corner. I shared my faith, and several of those kids got saved. And it was all the power of the Holy Spirit. And since that time, I've been filled with the Holy Spirit over and over and over again. You know, it's interesting, the same crowd that was baptized with the Spirit in Acts chapter 2 gets filled with the Spirit again in Acts chapter 4. The Spirit's baptism is a point-in-time experience, but it is not a one-time experience. It can be repeated time and time again. The great pastor R.A. Torrey wrote, We need to be filled again and again with the Holy Spirit. I am sometimes asked, Have you received the second blessing? Yes, and the third, and the fourth, and the fifth, and a hundreds besides, and I am looking for a new blessing today. Amen. Even if you've been filled with the Holy Spirit before, perhaps God wants to do a new work in your life this morning. Trust Him, and He'll fill you afresh. The old hymn should be our song today, Oh, for the Spirit's quickening power. Oh, for the soul-refreshing shower. Oh, for the Pentecostal power. Lord, send it now. People often ask the question, how do I know if I've been filled with the Holy Spirit? What are the evidences of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, let's go back to the day of Pentecost. Several phenomena accompanied the initial filling of the Holy Spirit. First, there was a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. There was this howling sound of a strong wind. It just a roar that rushed through the room. It was a sound that drowned out all the other sounds and all the other voices. Of course, throughout the scripture, the wind is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. It's a reminder to us of His sovereignty that he does as he pleases, when he pleases. Just as it's impossible to predict the wind currents, it's impossible to predict the movements of the Holy Spirit. He's always one step ahead of us. He's leading the way. He's calling the shots. It's never vice versa. A church effective for Jesus is a spirit-led church. Second, on Pentecost Sunday, there were four flames of fire that appeared and settled over the disciples' heads. You remember when Moses dedicated the tabernacle, and again when Solomon dedicated the temple. In both cases, God sent fire down from heaven to burn up the sacrifice. 
the supernatural reign of fire was God's sign that he had approved of these new dwelling places. Well, in Acts chapter 2, God is dedicating another dwelling place. Pentecost was the church's open house. And God followed his pattern by showing his approval on this new house, by sending fire down from heaven. This time, though, he didn't consume the dead sacrifices. Rather, he empowered living sacrifices, his people, his followers. It's interesting. The wind and the fire are never repeated in the book of Acts. They were one-time experiences reserved for the dedication of this new spiritual temple called the church. But not so with the third phenomenon mentioned in Acts chapter 2, speaking in tongues. The gift of tongues was exercised numerous times throughout the book of Acts. When the Spirit came upon the believers in the upper room, God gave them the capability to speak in languages other than their own known native tongue. In Acts chapter 2, verse 11, Luke describes the miracle as speaking the wonderful works of God. Apparently, this gift of tongues enabled them to supernaturally praise the Lord. Sadly, for some folks, speaking in tongues is like a rattlesnake. It's something that you just don't want to touch. It's like poison ivy. You want to avoid it at all costs. I grew up in the Baptist church, and we were scared to death of the gift of tongues. Our pastor wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. And looking back, though, I was robbed of a blessing because of fear and ignorance. What is this controversial, mysterious gift of tongues? Well, the word tongues simply means languages or dialects. The gift of tongues is the spirit-given capacity to praise God or pray to God in a language other than your own native tongue or any language that you might have learned. In Acts chapter 2, verse 4, when the gift of tongues was first manifested, we're told the Spirit gave them utterance. The gift of tongues wasn't a skill they were taught, but a phenomena that was prompted by the Holy Spirit. See, God knows all the languages that have ever been spoken. He even knows the language of the angels. In fact, God has an endless vocabulary. And he uses his lexicon to help his people praise him in an uninhibited and in a freeing way. The gift of tongues is supernaturally inspired speech. I've heard of misguided charismatics who offer classes in tongue speaking, or they have techniques that they use to teach eager believers how to speak in tongues. You know, here's how it works. Now, just kind of close your eyes and, and loosen up your tongue and just kind of let it flap up and down in your mouth a little bit. And then repeat these words, Owa, Tegu, Siam. Now, now say it real fast over and over. Owa, Tegu, Siam. Owa, Tegu, Siam. And if you think you can be taught how to speak in tongues, you are a goose. Tongues happens when the Holy Spirit enables us to praise God in an unlearned language. It's a fulfilling experience to praise God freely and uninhibitedly. But this is not something we learn or manufacture ourselves. 
This is a gift that's given to us by God. Of the 5,665 languages spoken in the world today, I know but one, English. And of that one language, I know very little. You know, there are 800,000 words in the English lexicon, but the average person's daily working vocabulary is a little more than 7,000 words. And this presents a problem. What happens when I can't find the right word or I'm at a loss for words? Ever happened to you? What happens when I can't find the right words and yet I really want to express what's on my mind and heart? Sometimes I want to tell my wife that I love her, but the term love is just not enough. It's overused. I mean, we say, I love ice cream. I love football. We love all kinds of things. The word love gets watered down. And this presents a frustration. How do I properly express my feelings? See, human beings are like this funnel. The narrow neck represents our intellect. The wider base is our spirit. In the spirit, we're capable of experiencing deep feelings in a wide array of emotions. And yet, All that we sense on the spiritual level then has to be channeled through a shallow intellect in a limited vocabulary to be expressed. Our narrowness is what cuts off our feelings and bottles up our emotions and basically strangles our expressions. We're pent up and therefore we shut up. And this isn't good. Why? Because God longs for our praise in our worship. He desires it. But here's what the Holy Spirit will do. He fills us up, and then he shakes us up, and then he pops the cork. It's called the gift of tongues, and it lets the bubbly of adoration and exaltation to spew out. This is what happens when we're filled with the Holy Spirit and given the gift of tongues. God bypasses our mental in our linguistic limitations by placing words in our minds that we don't understand but that we trust are the exact, accurate expression of our hearts. And by speaking those words, we can release our pent-up praise. One thing is sure, the filling of the Holy Spirit often results in abounding joy. As Peter calls it in 1 Peter 1 verse 8, joy inexpressible and full of glory. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're overwhelmed and overjoyed. See, if a person has been floundering spiritually, it's hard for them to grasp the importance of their praise. When your spirit is dry as a bone and you feel like dust inside, it's difficult to realize why bottled up feelings would be a problem. But when you're filled to overflowing, expression becomes a top priority. It's like getting lockjaw on your wedding day. That'd be bad. Imagine being unable to verbalize your love at the very moment when you want to communicate it best. Or think of your favorite football team playing their arch rival. Think of all those Texas A&M fans last night as they were beating Alabama? What if all of a sudden they got lockjaw and they couldn't shout and scream and cheer? It would be horrible. 
What if their mouth was taped shut? It would be torture not to cheer. You wouldn't want to rip off the tape. Well, the gift of tongues is God's way of removing the tape. The Spirit fills us to overflowing joy and love and power, and then He loosens our lips so that we can sing His wonderful praise. Tongues is one evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and who knows if the Lord may want to loosen your lips today. Another evidence of the Spirit's baptism, not mentioned here in Acts chapter 2, but spoken of elsewhere in Acts, is the gift of prophecy. In Acts chapter 19, when the believers in Ephesus are filled with the Holy Spirit, they prophesied. In other words, they uttered unplanned, unscripted, Spirit-evoked messages that were conveyed spontaneously through them by the Holy Spirit. In essence, God gave them a message for that moment. Often we get into so much trouble with our mouth, the uncontrolled tongue. It's no surprise that when the Spirit fills us, He shows it off by orchestrating our speech. In 1 Corinthians 14, we find a chapter that deals with these spiritual gifts, and it contrasts the gifts of tongues and prophecy. There in verses 2 and 3 it reads, He who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. Now clearly, tongues is man speaking to God, whereas prophecy is God speaking to man. Now, there's some confusion here. Sometimes you'll hear an utterance in tongues, and someone will give the supposed interpretation. It goes something like, oh, my little children, listen to me. It's as if the tongue is God speaking. That's, that's not biblical. Now, it might be a word of prophecy, but it's not the interpretation of the tongue. An unknown tongue is always man praising or praying to God, while prophecy is God speaking to us. Let me say, though, there are examples in the book of Acts where believers are filled with the Holy Spirit, and they neither speak in tongues or prophesy. In 1 Corinthians 12, verses 29 and 30, it teaches that there are a diversity of spiritual gifts, and not all of us are going to receive the same gifts. That includes tongues and prophecy, obviously. You can't say that the only evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the gift of tongues because Paul is clear that not every believer will speak in tongues. And yet all believers need to be baptized with the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe there is one sure evidence that does show up every time a believer is filled with the Holy Spirit, and that's the love and boldness to be a witness. In Acts chapter 4, verse 31, we're told what happened just a few days after the Feast of Pentecost when they had prayed. The place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And notice what happened. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. The floors and the rafters may not shake today, but God does want to fill each one of us with boldness and love. God delights in turning spiritual wimps into witnesses. 
when God fills us with his Holy Spirit, love and joy erupts in our hearts. It's like a volcanic explosion of grace. We're overwhelmed by a love from above. God's love causes us to forget our fears. We become oblivious to the opinions of others. The world sneers and jeers and fears no longer intimidate us. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what you need? I do. We're caught up. We get raptured and captured by the love of God. We become intoxicated with the Holy Spirit. In fact, this was the accusation made of the believers on the day of Pentecost. They were so giddy and excited as a result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Some observers mistook them as drunk. Remember Acts chapter 2, verse 13. Others mocking said, they are full of new wine. They were acting as if they were tipsy. See, you lose your inhibitions when you're drunk. And likewise, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you no longer care what people can do to you or think of you or say about you. You're not so easily intimidated anymore. All that matters to you now is pleasing and glorifying our mighty God. Don't you need that power? I do. One day, an inebriated fellow named Charlie, he was walking the street when he bumped into his pastor. Pastor scolded him for being drunk. Pastor Charlie denied to the pastor that he'd even touched the stuff. He are, I'm not drunk. Why do you think I'm drunk? Well, the pastor stated the obvious. He says, I know you're drunk by the way you're walking down the street. You got one foot in the gutter and you got the other foot on the curb. Oh, Charlie looked up into heaven. He lifted his hands to the sky and he shouted. He said, well, praise the Lord, I'm healed. I thought one leg was shorter than the other. Let me say, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you too will have one foot in the gutter and the other on the curb. Your passion for God will lift you toward heaven, but you'll also have a passion for the people around you that'll keep you on the street, even in the gutter, seeking to share God's mercy to those who need his mercy the most. Do you want to be energized to be a witness for Jesus? Don't you want to be filled and thrilled with the power of the Holy Spirit? If you do, you need some faith. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he summed up the experience of many Christians when he said, they expect nothing and they get nothing and nothing happens to them. Are you tired of wimping out when God calls on you to be a witness? Well, what are you expecting from God today? And I want you to understand, all that I've spoken of today isn't just religious talk to me. This is more than just church speak. I really believe that the God in heaven wants to empower you in a personal and spiritual manner. God desires to invade your life in such a way that his power makes a difference in your everyday dealings. And here's where all this is leading. I I just want you to know, I'm not going to have an altar call this morning and invite you forward and lay hands on you and pray for you to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because I've never baptized anyone with God's Spirit. And I don't want anyone to get prayed for by me and then leave thinking that that's it. They've got what they were after. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, John the Baptist told those following him, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me 
is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Jesus is the baptizer, not John, and certainly not me. Jesus is the one who baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. And this is why I don't want to make this morning a church thing where we pray a prayer and something may or may not happen to you, but you act like it did and you walk off and you forget it. I've been part of that all too often. Folks might leave church feeling better, but that kind of thing doesn't last very long. I've seen it fade off before kickoff of the Falcons game. But you really do need to do business with God. That's what you need. Rather than just come up here for a short prayer, you need to do business with God. You can come up front this morning if you like and pray, or you can go home and you can wait. But over the coming days, here's my invitation. Over the coming days, I want you to get on your knees and go to God's throne and ask Jesus to baptize you with his spirit. Then I want you to keep asking until you know for certain that you've been emboldened and empowered with all his might. Because I believe he can do it. I believe he wants to baptize each one of us with the power of his spirit. And I believe we need it. In Luke chapter 11, verse 9, you have his promise. Jesus said, so I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. And then he says, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This morning, I commend you to the God who created you. And to the God who saved you. And to the God who now wants to empower you to make a difference in your world. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is part of your birthright as a believer. God wants and promises to pour out His Spirit upon you. And He uses your asking and seeking and knocking as a way to humble you. And create a repentant heart in you and to increase your faith. So, if you want to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, you need to rise up and ask.